The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight. Isn't that exciting? So we are going to look tonight for the second week at biblical um, meditation and prayer. And uh, last week we ended up with uh, various passages that um, uh, demonstrated um, meditation or the need for it or commanded it, etc. Meditation, simply careful thinking over the Word of God. Um, but there's a special passage or special section of Scripture that probably more than any other in the Bible displays the beautiful marriage uh, the special marriage between the Word of God and prayer, and that is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a really marvelous psalm, 176 verses long, arranged in uh, a very clear pattern of Hebrew poetry, which does not translate, does not come across. But uh, basically, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each letter gets eight chances to sing the praises of the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God made up by those 22 Hebrew letters. And uh, oh, what God can do with 22 letters. Uh, and so basically what the, what the psalmist does is he gives the first Hebrew letter, Aleph, eight verses. And each of those eight verses begins with that letter. And then uh, Beit uh, gets eight, eight, eight chances to sing the praises of the Word of God, etc. And all the way through the 22 letters. Eight times 22, 176. And that's where you get the 176 verses. If you want to have a, a start to learning the Hebrew language, most English Bibles have the Hebrew letters printed right on the pages of Psalm 119. So you just turn there and you can see Aleph and Beit and Gimel and all that. And those are the Hebrew letters. And it's a long journey from that to actually knowing Hebrew. Okay. Um, most people get off that train at some point. All right. Uh, I got off when I had passed all my seminary classes. So, um, but uh, at any rate, actually, I got off when my seminary professor, who got a PhD in Hebrew uh, at Harvard and had been doing it for 30 years, told me he couldn't read the Hebrew Bible just picking it up and reading it. He still needed a lexicon and other things. And I'm thinking, thank you. Okay. Now I know what not to spend my life doing. Okay. Um, but I'm glad for men like him and others that just really do know the Hebrew language. Now, Psalm 119 is very unique in that, as far as I know, every uh, verse but three refers to the Word of God in some way. And also, this one I didn't know, but I knew that one before, but every verse but three is directed to God in prayer as well. It's in the second person. And so, basically, you can have a fun time looking for those six verses or you can listen to me the rest of the evening. Uh, I would urge you, if you want to do that, you can do it another time. But, but basically, you see then the marriage. Uh, the topic, the Word of God. The mode, prayer. He is praying to God about His marvelous Word. But even with that in Psalm 119, there are some marvelous verses that really are very useful uh, for us in our Bible study. Uh, so useful that I actually would encourage people to pray uh, some of these prayers to God every day, every time that they study the Scriptures. Uh, so, for example, uh, Psalm 119 and I think verse 27 says, open my eyes, no, uh, what is it? Verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I don't know where that is, but it's in my head. So anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, we pray that one. Psalm 119, verse 18, I think it is. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Now, what does that mean? Open my eyes that I may see 
wonderful things in your law. I need help. In other words, God, if you don't do this, what will happen to me as I'm reading the Scriptures? I won't get it. I won't see it. I'll read it and nothing will happen to me. How many times have you said that? I read the Bible and it just doesn't speak to me. There's just nothing there. Well, pray this prayer. This is not the prayer of Jabez, you know, automatically. But it's a heart disposition where you're saying, God, I'm dependent on you. I must have your help. The Word of God was given to us as a special gift of God, but that isn't enough. The Scripture wouldn't exist if God didn't act powerfully to make it so. But even that's not enough. Then we have to go beyond, and even then it will do nothing for us if He doesn't help us at that moment. Even if you're a committed Christian, been walking with the Lord a long time, you can still read the Bible for an hour and get almost nothing out of it. So you have to have help, and I have to have help, and God is ready to give it. He said very plainly in James that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. What better wisdom could there be than that which He gives directly through the text of Scripture? So we should just come, Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes, I'm blind. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world so that those who are blind may be able to see and those who claim they see will become blind. And so basically you come saying, if you don't give me sight, I won't see it. So that's foundational to meditation, isn't it? Isn't it in the process of meditation that God is opening your eyes? You're saying, oh, aha, there's something new. Wow, that's exciting. You're seeing some marvelous things. But there's some other marvelous verses about meditation in Psalm 119 as well. For example, verse 15. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. So there it's just displayed. He's saying, this is what I do. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Psalm 119, verse 23. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Uh, Verse 48. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Uh, Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And then 148, my eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. When was the last time you did that? But uh, here's the thing. There's many verses there that are referring to meditation in Psalm 119. I I just want to make a note relevant to redemptive history. Redemptive history is the concept that God is unfolding salvation to the human race and that as time went on in that era... Uh, that we knew more and more, that God gave more and more revelation to the people of God. We are further along in redemptive history than the psalmist was. He is thrilled with the law of Moses. I mean, really excited about the law of Moses. We have that, but we have much more. We have the prophets and the wisdom literature. We have the gospels of Jesus Christ. We have the acts. We have the epistles. We have the book of Revelation. We have so many more riches than this psalmist had. We should be that much more excited than he is. But sometimes we can't hold a candle to his level of excitement. He is thrilled. He's going to stay open through the... His eyes are going to stay open through the watches of the night so he can meditate on the law of Moses. That's pretty remarkable. So I think that's a spur to us to do this work of biblical meditation. So where are we? Uh, the power of meditation on the Word of God is reflected back to God in prayer and it's displayed again and again. Now, here's a, a cycle that I've noticed in Psalm 119. Meditation promotes understanding and understanding promotes meditation. Both of those things are taught in Psalm 119. Of course, the first seems intuitively obvious, doesn't it? The more you meditate on Scripture, the more you'll understand if God opens your eyes, Right? If he reveals it to you, verse 18, then you will understand. That's what we're seeking, isn't it, in meditation? That that the light would go on and we would get it. We would see things. We would understand things. 
And so that's the thing. Meditation promotes understanding. But there is a verse that teaches it directly. Verse 99, Psalm 119, verse 99 says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Now, that sounds a little arrogant, doesn't it? Like he's somewhat boasting. But he's just saying it's a statement of fact. I just know more because of my meditation. So forget the tone or his attitude towards teachers. Forget all that. Just learn what he's saying there. The understanding has come from the meditation. Because I meditate, I understand. That's what he's saying. But then there's a remarkable reversal that happens in verse 27. And again, verse 27 is one of those verses that you can read and just say, whatever, and just read verse 28. (laughs) It's when you meditate on it that it starts to challenge you a bit. And then you say, what in the world is going on here? And so verse 27 says, let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. So if you just remove extra words, you say, let me understand, then I'll meditate. So I thought to myself when I was going through this the first time, how in the world does that work? It wasn't long before I started to see it. Here's the thing. If you do a lot of hard work meditating and never get any insight out of it, are you motivated to keep doing that hard work? Isn't it because the light goes on, because you see new things you haven't seen before that you're actually motivated to keep going? It's when you memorize and in memorizing Ephesians or memorizing uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17, that you see something you'd never seen before. Probably it's not true that the people of God have never seen it before. It's probably heretical in that case. But you've never seen it before. And therefore, it's thrilling and exciting to you. You're, 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 it's yours. You, you came up with it yourself. No pastor taught it to you, whatever. It's yours. You had more insight than all your teachers, so you think. Then you go and find out, ah, they knew that years ago. Well, that's fine. Praise God for that. But you have discovered something and you're excited. How motivated would you be to keep going in your memorization, in your meditation? You would be. The analogy I use when I preach through Psalm 119, some of you heard me say this since then, some haven't, but is of an eccentric uncle that uh, gives you an abandoned silver mine near Tucson, Arizona. You didn't even know you had an uncle. And now he's died and left you with a silver mine. What in the world are you going to do with a silver mine? So at least you think it's worth a plane flight anyway to go look at your new piece of property. So you go out there and you drive three hours out of Tucson. You get to some dusty town and you tell some guy in some hardware store what's happened. And he's like, oh, I knew that old coot. So now you got his silver mine. Nobody's been up there for years. So, well, I'm going to go up there and see what I've got. He said, you know what you have? You have a hill with a bunch of dust and all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to go look anyway. Is that all right with you? Yes, go ahead. So then you go and you get your flashlight and all that stuff and you get to the thing and it's all blocked out with warning signs and you pull the you know, the two by fours off and you go down in that hole and you poke around for a couple of hours and you come up with a big fat zero. There's nothing there. It is a hole in the ground. How motivated will you be to go back in that hole? You will never go back in that hole again. All right. What will you do? What will you do to that silver mine? Close it up and what? You'll sell it. (laughs) Try to get what you can out of it. Then if you want some silver, you can convert the money into whatever silver or whatever it's worth, you know, how many dollars an ounce. But uh, there's the thing. You're going to sell it. You're never going back in there, though. But let's say you go in there and you're poking around after 90 minutes. There's a little kind of tunnel going down. looks like nobody's been down there. And pretty soon you find some vein, some silver vein, and you bring it to the assaying office and they say, you know, this is high-grade silver. How motivated would you be to go back in there and do some work? Now, you might not yourself go, but you might invest in some that know what they're doing to go in there and get that silver out. And so, you know, wisdom inside is likened to silver in the book of Proverbs. It takes digging. It takes hard work. But here's the thing. If you meditate, you'll get understanding. If you understand, then you'll meditate some more. It's a cycle. 
So here it is. What, what comes as a result of all this? It's what I call building the city of truth inside your heart brick by brick. It takes years to get your doctrine right. It takes years and years to understand the Bible. It doesn't happen overnight. A new Christian is, a, is every bit as much a Christian as an old Christian, but they're immature, and their understanding of the Scripture isn't quite where it needs to be. God loves them every bit as much, every bit as much adopted, every bit as much justified and all of that, but they're immature. And they have to grow in their understanding, and that happens through careful study of the Word of God. You see it? The cycle. It's right there in Psalm 119, verse 99, and verse 27. You put the two together, and there's a cycle that produces ever-increasing understanding of the Word of God. Okay? So, understanding also promotes obedience, and obedience promotes understanding. Are those in there? Yes, they are. That same cycle is found there. All right? Understanding promotes obedience. The more of God's law that's written on your heart, the more obedient you will be. Uh, getting out of Psalm 119, you can see Jesus saying this, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. It's very clear that if you don't understand, you can't obey, right? And that, that makes perfect sense. If, if you don't know these things, you can't do them, right? But the fact of the matter is the reverse verse is taught as well in verse 100. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. In other words, because I have a pattern of obeying the Word of God, I actually have a greater understanding of it. Now, how does that work? Well, when, you are, when your heart is holding back from something, you actually tend to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yes, you, even you as a Christian, tend to do it. Because you don't want to obey in some difficult area, your mind starts to get hardened or darkened in that one area. But if you're willing to obey anything God tells you, you'll have greater understanding because your mind is free. Just tell me what it says. It could be a tough topic like what to do with your money on tithing or giving to the poor. It could be on evangelism, something on marriage. It could be on headship and submission in marriage. It could be on divorce and remarriage. It could be on any one of a number of topics. But if your heart comes to the scripture and says, whatever it says, I'll do, you will understand much more quickly than the person who's got an agenda. Somebody who's ready to twist the scripture a bit, he's not going to understand, you see. So if you are ready to obey, you will understand more. So therefore, your meditation should be to promote obedience. That's what you're seeking to do. This is the life that's well-pleasing to God, a life of obedience. Is it possible for you to do or say or think or feel anything that God hasn't first commanded you to do that's pleasing to him? I tell you, no. God's commands in the 66 books of the Bible are comprehensive and they cover every area of what is pleasing to him. So therefore, you cannot get ahead of his commands. Like I said, I've said before, you're not going to... You know, becoming a God and, and God saying on a given day, surprise me. Do something, do something I've never thought of. Go off and freelance. Bring me something. He just doesn't do that. What he's telling you is obey me. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. This is love for God, to obey his commands, right? So when you go to the scripture for meditation, your purpose should be life transformation through obedience. Show me something, Lord, and I'll do it. If you get in the habit of learning new things and not obeying them, you'll stop learning new things. That's what's going to happen. You won't, you won't learn anything new. God will just shut that down. He won't show it to you anymore. And so you're going to pray. Here it is. I knew it was in here somewhere. Um, prayer for understanding. Fifteen times the psalmist prays to God for God to teach him the scripture. Fifteen times in Psalm 119, he prays and says, God, teach me. Please teach me. Uh, the clearest is verse 18. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful thing, things in your laws. Ten times the psalmist asks God, please help me obey. You know, like it says in Hebrews 13, may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Do you believe that God does that? Does he work in us what is pleasing to him? Yes, to God be the glory. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. That's in Isaiah. But Psalm 119 puts it this way. 
Direct me, verse 35, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Direct me. What does that mean? Direct me in the path of your commands. Does it mean kind of take over and drive me there, Lord? Take out my heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh, drive me in the path of your commands. Like another psalm says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Isn't that a marvelous thing? That God sets your heart free so you can obey. That's true freedom, isn't it? Isn't true freedom complete unreluctant obedience to whatever God commands. That's how it works. You want to be free, then do it. All right, that's Psalm 119. Let's move on. I told you I had tons to do tonight. All right, let's look at Daniel chapter 9. Take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 9. This may be one of the clearest displays or examples of meditation on Scripture and prayer. Daniel 9. Daniel's character is on display. There are at least two major themes of Daniel. You guys uh, who sat through... My summary on Daniel. I've heard this, but I'll say it anyway. Two major themes of Daniel. God the King's absolute sovereignty, his sovereign control over the rise and fall of nations and their rulers. That's theme one. God is in total control of the rise and fall of the world. Isn't that beautiful? Just to know that God's in charge. He knows it. He doesn't just know it. He rules over it. But the second theme of the book of Daniel, second major theme is, what kind of individual does God bless in the middle of all of that? You see? And that's why there's stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's why there's insights into what kind of lifestyle Daniel had. You see? That's why we look at his prayer life. That's why we see his courage uh, in standing firm for that, uh, etc. It's so that we can learn how we are to be while God does the rise and fall of the world. Because for the most part, the people of God are less than flotsam and jetsam on that tidal wave. We really are. We are the victims. We are the ones that get trampled. We are the ones. Yet, for all of that, that's why God's doing the history of the world is for his people. But in terms of of movers and shakers, we aren't. Okay? We are not. We are not the many wise or influential or noble birth or the, the, the movers and shakers. I'm not saying that Nebuchadnezzar didn't come to faith. I'm not saying there's not a Constantine from time to time. I'm not saying that. We should pray for the conversion of kings because God uh, desires that all men be saved. And so we can, we can be praying for different kinds of people. You never know. Surprising conversions do happen. But for the most part, you know, it's the downtrodden, it's the poor and the oppressed that get converted. So what kind of person does God bless? Daniel gives us a display. Uh, of that. First of all, we see in Daniel a commitment to personal holiness. Daniel's yearning for holiness is throughout the, uh, the prayer in, in Daniel 9. The fact is established at the beginning of the book in Daniel 1.8. It says Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. That resolution is a resolution for personal purity, isn't it? Surrounded by a pagan culture, contrary to the commands of God, he has made a resolution in his heart. He will not be defiled. That's a, that's a good thing to keep in mind. It do, it's, not, it's not a dietary issue for us anymore. That's not it. It's just the things that pollute our souls, whatever they are. This is religion that God, God accepts is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the same resolution, isn't it? That we would not be defiled. Well, Daniel 1.8, he resolves not to defile himself with the king's uh, food. Uh, in emergencies, Daniel's instinct is always to pray, isn't it? So when Nebuchadnezzar sets up that, uh, or, or well, actually, sorry, when Nebuchadnezzar has that dream and he says that somebody's got to tell him his dream and interpret it or else everybody dies, all his counselors die, what is Daniel's instinct? Well, after going in to get some time, you know, so I only need a little time and he gets that, he goes back to his house, gathers uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego around him and they pray. 
and they seek the Lord all night. And in the middle of the night, God gives him the answer uh, and he tells him what he's going to do. And Daniel says he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Etc. Daniel's daily life, the foundation of his life um, is exposed in emergency when Darius foolishly commands that no one pray to any God or man for 30 days except to him. He later is, I'm sure, bitterly sorry he signed that law. He was tricked. He was trapped. Darius was. And I think it was later he realized the whole thing had been focused on Daniel because they didn't want a Jew ruling the, the kingdom, the empire under Darius. And so they orchestrated the whole thing. What does Daniel do? He prays. doesn't matter. He does not matter. When he heard the decree, it says in Daniel 6.10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So my question to you is how important is your quiet time to you? That important? You willing to risk your life for it? Daniel was willing to die rather than give up his prayer life. And notice he prays toward Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Well, because I don't know if you remember when Solomon dedicated the temple, he said, if you kick us out of the promised land, basically, and we're scattered all over the world, if we pray toward this place, you will hear us from heaven and restore us. And so Daniel prays toward Jerusalem. And basically in Daniel 9, what is he praying for? But please restore us. Bring your people back to the promised land. So that's what he's doing. Daniel also had a scorn for worldly pleasures, treasures, and power. He says to Belshazzar, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. All right, he's not interested in those things. So that's what kind of man he is. Commitment to personal holiness, a habit of prayer, even if it's very costly. Scorn for worldly influence and power and material possessions. Those things don't matter to him. He's a man of prayer. All right, Daniel 9 shows us a pattern though. All right, you look at it, how did this prayer time originate? What gave root to it? Well, look at Daniel 9 and verse 2. Can somebody read that for me? Daniel 9, 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay. So what was happening? He's reading what? He's reading the scripture. He's reading Jeremiah the prophet. By the way, how many copies of Jeremiah the prophet do you think existed in the world at that time? This was 70 years after, Dan, after Jeremiah had prophesied this. How many copies do you think there were? I wouldn't be shocked if that were the only one. All right, but maybe in 70 years, some copies had been made. God saw to it, but it wouldn't matter. There was no way that that copy was going to be destroyed. <laughs> it's impossible. Just like Jesus' bones were never going to get broken on the cross. It's just impossible. It doesn't matter. Maybe physically they could do it, but God put his sovereignty behind being sure they would never be broken. But at any rate, somehow Daniel, after such a short time, gets a copy of Jeremiah the prophet. And what does he read? Well, he could have read this, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it a desolate forever. Maybe he was reading that. And there's some other places as well. So he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And by the way, I don't know how he got it to him. Maybe Baruch brought it to him when he was in exile. It's very interesting. You read the final chapters of Jeremiah and there's a relationship between Jeremiah and the exiles that are already in Babylon. And so it could be, you know, give this to Daniel. I don't know. I mean, it's just really interesting. But there he is. He's reading the scripture. And out of the scripture, what does he discern? God's plan in redemptive history. Notice, is, is Daniel praying 
that the gospel would be preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ be preached as a testimony to all nations and then the end would come. Was he praying that? No, he wasn't. Why not? It wasn't that time for redemptive history. What was the next item in redemptive history according to the clear teaching of the prophet? The restoration of the Jews back to the promised land. That's what he prays for. Why is that relevant? Well, what's the next item for us in redemptive history? That this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Pray for that. And then the end will come. You see, you find your place in redemptive history and play, pray like Daniel. But the principles are the same. You're taking the word of God seriously and you're going and you're bringing it to God. But with what attitude? How does Daniel pray? What is, what is it like? Well, first of all, he prays with great humility. Look at verse 3. I turned to the Lord, turned my face to the Lord God and seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What's going on there in verse 3? Is it not great brokenness over sin, great humility? You will scour, you will study the life of Daniel in vain as recorded in Scripture to find any transgressions. I would say that other than Jesus... More is written about Daniel of anyone in the Bible without finding any faults than anyone else in the Bible, including John the Baptist. In other words, any other figure that has that much written about them, you're going to find something wrong with them at some point. Maybe Joseph makes it through, but he doesn't deal with his brothers too well. You know what I'm saying? I I don't know that I would have done that whole dream thing. I would have had some wisdom about that and held it back, knowing how they would respond. That's a judgment call. Either way, Joseph, clearly a godly man and not much wrong with him at all. Very, very. But Daniel, there's nothing like that. And yet here he is broken, weeping, sackcloth, ashes. Is he sinless? No way. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody without need of a savior. And if you want to know, did Daniel sin? Ask Daniel. What do you think he would say? Well, his behavior here in Daniel 9 alludes to it. And look what he says. This prayer is saturated with confession of sin and with humility, with brokenness. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And then look what he starts saying. I'll just uh, skim this across. I've summarized this. Verse 5, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants and prophets. Verse 7, we are covered with shame. We are, we were unfaithful to you. Verse 8, we were cut, we are covered with shame. Uh, we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the Lord. We have not kept your commands. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed. We have turned away, refused to obey. We have sinned against you. Verse 13, and despite all your judgments, still we have not sought your favor. We have still not turned from our sins. We have still not given attention to your truth. Verse 14, we have not obeyed. Verse 15, we have sinned. Uh, verse 15 again, we have done wrong. Verse 16, he mentions our sins and our iniquities. 25 times. He mentions his own sinfulness. And I say his own because he's saying we. Shall we not take him at his word? He's including himself. There's a solidarity. The sins of his people are his own sins. And he would have to say, Lord, I have not given attention to your word as I should. I have not honored it as I should. There's only one man in history that did. Jesus is the one that said to Peter, if I call on the Father and he sends the angels, how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say I must die? And I must drink the cup of God's wrath. I would rather die drinking the cup of God's wrath than a single jot or tittle of the scripture be broken. Only Jesus has had that attitude towards scripture. Daniel's far short of that. And so he includes himself. So you want to come to God in prayer, you come with brokenness and humility. 
a searching of your own heart, a yieldedness to God, etc. 25 times. It's what the Puritans call loading up the soul with a sense of sin so that we turn to God humbly with a broken spirit. An overwhelming sense. We have deserved everything you have done to us. It's also prompted by a deep love for God. Jeremiah 29, 13, I think speaking exactly of Daniel. I think if you look at the context of Jeremiah 29, it's talking about when you're in exile and you're away. He said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, thank God there was someone who did. He sought him with all his heart. Look at Daniel 9, 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Do you see the love he has for God there? The greatness of God. And notice also how his prayer is based on the glory of God, God's concern for his own name. Four times he mentions the name of God, praying God's concern for his name back to him. I mentioned this in my sermon this past Sunday. Remember? Um, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So note Daniel's concern for the name or for the reputation of Almighty God. Look what he says in verse 15. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and made for yourself a name that endures to this day. In other words, God, you made a name connected with your people, the Jews. Well, look what he says then in verse 18 and 19. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Do you see that? This desolate city bears your name, God. Are you concerned about that? This ugly, wretched, rebellious city bears your name. And he himself, God said again and again, I chose to put my name there. Now, we know in the book of uh, Ezekiel, God's glory departed the city, but God's reputation is tied up with Jerusalem, isn't it? Jesus himself called it the city of the great king. So there's a tie there with the name. So he says, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, hear and act for your sake. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Boy, that's how to pray. Do you not see it? It's such a rich expression of prayer. So you want a good display of a marriage of meditation on Scripture and prayer? Go to Daniel 9. He opens up Jeremiah. He sees the 70 years and he goes to God with this kind of prayer. So we go to Matthew 24, verse 14, and we find that this gospel is going to be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Bring that to God. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Bring that to God. That's where we're at in redemptive history. But go with this kind of attitude. Say, Lord, I haven't done much for the advance of your gospel. I haven't cared much about it. Many people have come and gone in my life and I've never said a word to them about Jesus. I've never witnessed to them at all. This is what you're doing in the world. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I haven't sought and saved anybody or pointed them to the one who does seek and save. I haven't done my part. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for my negligence. Forgive me for my weakness. Forgive me for my worldliness. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for transgressing your commands. And I have greater blessings than Daniel did. I have the indwelling spirit. I have the gospels of Jesus Christ. I'm further along in redemptive history. I know more of your plan. I have the book of Revelation. I know how it all comes out. I have so much more. And yet for all of that, when you talk like that, that's what I meant when I said the Puritans talk about loading up your conscience with a sense of guilt. You say, that's not healthy. Oh, yes, it is. Is that, aren't those things true? (laughs) Aren't they true, every one of them? So why not speak the truth? Speak the truth. And then 
conviction comes. And there's a difference, by the way, between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the murky, gloomy depression that the Spirit, that the, that, that Satan sells to us. There's a difference. You need to tell the difference. One of them feels like the, the cut of a skillful surgeon cutting out a tumor that's hurting you. And the other one is just an inky depression that leads to nothing good. All right. So you come with this kind of brokenness and pray. And by the way, I don't know. Daniel is extremely persistent in prayer. In Daniel 10, he fasts and prays for 21 days. Here in Daniel 9, there's no sense at all of the time, but it must have been irrelevant to Daniel. Did it matter how long he prayed? He just prayed and prayed and prayed. And uh, what answer does he get? The angel comes and gives an answer. I'm not promising that to you, friends. I'm not. But that was a wonder-working time. And uh, Daniel 9, 21, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel... The man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Isn't that the goal of meditation? This time the angel brought it to him. And what did he bring? He brought him the 70 weeks of Daniel. Isn't that exciting? The 70 weeks that would keep commentators and you know, people interested in the end time and dispensational premillennialists and all kinds of people fascinated for centuries. He brought that to Daniel. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city and all that's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's what he brings them. So I'm not promising that kind of an answer, but God will answer your prayers. And uh, by the way, the angel comes and brings with him an invitation to more meditation. So here's a bunch of revelation he gives him and he doesn't explain it. And he goes off and there's Daniel left with the 70 weeks of Daniel. <laughs> and he's the first one who tries to puzzle over it and figure it out. So it says in verse 23 of chapter 9, therefore consider the message and understand the vision. So he's inviting them to meditate on this, work on this. All right. So what's he telling them? So Daniel 10, 11, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. So a summary, Daniel 9 is a glorious example of the kind of biblical meditation leading to intense supplication. It is rooted in specific and relevant texts of scripture. It is connected with the flow of events in redemptive history. It is carried on by a godly man whose whole life is directed towards serving God. It is humble. It is brokenhearted. It is saturated with scriptural insights. It pleads the promises of God and humbly asks him to do the very thing God said he would do. That's successful prayer. All right. All right. Where else are we going to go now? Well, let's talk about six. Any questions right there on Daniel 9? I could say more about Daniel 9. I don't know if you get that sense, but it's a rich chapter. Yes. It's not in the scripture that I've been meditating on. God is not giving me um, or saying what he's going to do. He's giving directions. And so uh, when you talk about asking him to do the very thing that he said he's going to do, you work that in your heart. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's going to preach the gospel in the whole world as a testament in all nations. He's going to do that. So isn't that worth asking him to do? You know, I'm not just saying what he's going to do in your life, you know, et cetera. I, I think there may be insights there, but I think just bigger picture. What is he doing in the world? And is he not bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth as a testimony to all nations? Hasn't he made incredible progress in that in the last 50 years? I mean, isn't that just going faster and faster all the time? So I think, boy, if you're a bandwagon kind of person, jump on that bandwagon because it's rolling. I mean, it's happening. People are, are the gospel is getting preached. There are people going out from our church. They're going out and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's exciting. So that's what I mean. It's not so much the specific insight of should I do this or what's, you know. I'm not saying God doesn't give those things. God cares about small things and large. But when I say pray that he would do the thing he said he would do, I mean the thing he said he would do in Scripture. He said he would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Pray it back to him. 
All right, well, let's talk about six good reasons why we should meditate. First, we should meditate, first of all, because of the nature of Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed and perfect, a holy treasure of wisdom that is literally inexhaustible. Now, some of you may be particularly enamored of a, of a novel that's your favorite book and you've read it more than once. You might have even read it five or six times, but I tell you at some point, you don't need to read it anymore. You're not going to get anything more out of it. But the Word of God is living and active, isn't it? In other words, it's kind of like, have you ever worried about like yogurt cultures, these living things going down your throat? It's alive inside you. It's kind of scary, really. You know, put it under a microscope and it's like, do you really want to be eating something alive? But anyway, there it is. Um, but the Word of God is alive and it's constantly doing things. Do I mean that nouns and verbs and grammar change all the time? No. It's that we're constantly in a different place and we see new applications of the same truths. Or we just see truths that have been there, but we haven't put it together yet. We haven't meditated on it yet, just like I did with Psalm 119. So the nature of Scripture says we should meditate. Scripture is infinite in its conceptions and its interconnections. Take this verse and that verse, connect them together, and you get something new you hadn't seen before. It's amazing how they connect. And the more Scripture you know, the more that happens. It is. It's just incredible. The interconnections of Scripture are just supernatural, literally supernatural. There's no other way to explain them. So you're just going to see things go together. You can make more things out of those truths than you can out of a million Lego blocks. And it's amazing what you can do with Legos. But at any rate, I mean, things just connect. They just fit together. And you're like, wow, whole bunch, whole whole realms of truth that you hadn't seen before. There's more in the Bible than you think there is. That's all I'm saying. It's really quite remarkable. Secondly, the nature of our own hearts says we should meditate. What do I mean by that? Well, our hearts are naturally hard, unyielding and resistant to the word of God. Israel is called stiff-necked because they resist. They don't yield to God. So also with our hearts. If you're going to engrave letters on a steel wall with a steel stylus pen, you don't just kind of write quickly. You've got to be there working on each trough until the letters are engraved in the steel wall. Your heart is harder than steel. So is mine. <laughs> it takes repetition. It takes work. It takes the Word of God working in things. We are slow of heart and foolish to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Jesus said. You are in error, he said to the Sadducees, because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. So for me, I think that's universally true. Any error in my life comes because I don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. So the nature of my own heart means I ought to meditate. I ought to work the truth into my heart. We are forgetful. That's true. We are forgetful. We forget things. So we need to keep going over it. Thank you. I forgot to say that. This is so exciting. Okay, thirdly, the nature of salvation. You should meditate because of how salvation works. Salvation is a process. Justification, sanctification, glorification. You don't get it all at once. And if you have been justified, you are now in the process of being sanctified and will be to the day you die. The process of sanctification begs for you to meditate on Scripture. It's essential to making progress in sanctification for you to meditate on Scripture. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, 
but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So because you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, you do that by meditation on the word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. The essence of our daily sanctification then is listening to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you. The Holy Spirit speaks to you primarily through texts of scripture primarily through text of scripture as you've noted before hebrews 3 7 and 8 so as the holy spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts you know that's a quote of psalm 95 the holy spirit is speaking psalm 95 to you today and he's not just speaking psalm 95 to you today he's speaking hebrews 3 to you today and he's speaking all scripture to you today today being the realm that we're living in now the era of today So as God speaks to you by the Spirit through the Scripture, you follow Him and that's how sanctification happens, through growth in godliness. Fourthly, the nature of our changing lives. We are aging. We're in different places. We are high school students. We're college students. We're single career people. We are newlywed married. We are expectant parents. We are parents of teenagers. We are empty nesters. We are grandparents. We are in nursing homes. We are on our deathbed, okay? You're just moving through life and you're in different places. Your life is changing all the time. And so therefore, you can come back again to a scripture you hadn't noticed before and you're in a whole different place now and it is ready now to speak to you. You're ready at least, I'll say it this way, you're ready to hear it now. You're ready to hear it. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It could be there'll be a time in your life that that verse will mean more to you than it does now. You know? I'm just saying, you're just ready because you're in a different place in your life. Constantly changing. Fifth, the nature of our techno-crazed world. Never in the history of the church have we had so many distractions from the kingdom of God. All right? We are constantly bombarded by new and different things to do, with our minds especially. Do you think Satan doesn't know it's all about the battle for your mind? He knows very well. It's all about what you think about. Your attention. What are you giving your attention to? He cares about that. And so, therefore, he is just distracting us with all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Just amazing. And so, because the world is like it is now compared to 200 years ago, it's a lot quieter, a lot more slower, a lot more time to think as you walked from one place to the next. You had a couple hours to get there or just riding on horseback or whatever. There was just more time to think. It was more reflective time. And you look at it, the Puritans, you know, I'll tell you this, they had long, long church services. And they, the pastors would preach for over an hour with many points and subpoints. They would pray pastoral prayers longer than they would preach. So you're, you buckle up your seatbelts. You're talking two and a half hours of listening, okay? And 90 minutes or 75 minutes, though, is the pastoral prayer. It's unbelievable. And you're like, whoa, were they like from a different planet? No, I actually feel like we are from a different planet. The stuff that just shortens our attention span so much. So I think we need to start going the opposite way and start building the attention span longer by meditation on Scripture, the nature of our techno-crazed world. All right? We need this. And the nature of our work. God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We're about important work here. And so we need to take it seriously. It is a massive undertaking making disciples of all nations. It's comprised of countless number of daily tasks that build up to a huge kingdom that will never end. 
And so we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, tasklets that will build up into a big kingdom for Jesus, right? Well, are you ready for your good works? Are you ready for tomorrow's good works? You ready to do them, hit them all? You ready to bat a thousand and get them all? I don't know that I have ever got all the good works that God's given me to do in a single hour, day, forget it. I've learned a long time ago. There's no way I've done all of the good works God intended for me to do in one 24-hour period. All right, I'm more humble than that. Now I'm like, oh God, give me a good 10 minutes, you know, that I think properly and pray properly and act properly for just 10 minutes. That would be something. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And notice, God doesn't just prepare the task for us. He prepares us for the task, right? He might get you ready years in advance by giving you a scripture you've memorized. You meditate on it. You get an insight. You store it up. Years later, it comes up in a witnessing or counseling situation. Didn't even know, but you remember it. And and there it comes. And God got you ready. Just like look at Acts 10, Cornelius. He gets Cornelius ready for Peter. And then he gets Peter ready for Cornelius. He worked both ends of the equation so that the two of them get together and the Gentiles are converted. Boy, it's awesome. And so God gets the good works ready both ends, sovereignly out there, but in your own heart. And in your own heart, he gets the good works ready by meditation on scripture and prayer. Now, what is the goal of meditation and prayer? First, it is insight. Insight. Insight is illumination, understanding, an aha moment where you see something. I guess the best, I almost can't describe it without talking about vision. You see something in the scripture, something you hadn't seen before, as we've already noted. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law, Psalm 19, verse 18, or this one. This is my key verse for how I preach and teach. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Unpacking, unfolding, like, like a garment that's, when I get done, a tapestry, it's been all folded up. I take the text, I unfold it, and just lay it out and say, look at that. That's expositional teaching, preaching. That's what I seek to do. Why? Because according to 130, it gives understanding to the simple. No offense, I'm not saying, I'm just reading the verse, okay? <laughs> but let's be honest, aren't all of us simple, you know, when it comes to God? Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How could we be prideful about the word simple? We are simple, okay? But if you want more understanding, then unfold God's words. And I said, preach to yourself. So unfold God's words to yourself. Go over it, etc. okay? Insight leads to something. It leads to increased faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, right? So insight produces faith. It produces more faith. Faith is living. It's not set piece. It's more like a green plant than like a marble or brass trophy. It needs food. And the food of faith is what? It's the word of God. Feed your faith by the word. You want a strong faith? A strong sense that God is here right now. A strong sense that there are angels and demons. A strong sense of judgment day and what it will be like to, to give God an account for Wednesday. Okay. A strong sense of that. A vivid sense of God's power at work in you. To will and to do is is good pleasure. A strong sense of that, then feed your soul with the word of God. If you don't, you'll have a weak sense of all those things. It will fade on you. You won't strongly feel that God is there. You will not strongly feel the weight of judgment day coming. You won't. And so you've got to feed your faith. So insight produces faith. Faith leads to hotter affections. Your affections are stimulated. Your love is kindled. 
You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because you see him more clearly now. Right? And you love your neighbors yourself. Why? Because you see him or her more clearly now too. You see with biblical eyes. And that produces, oh, by the way, hotter affection, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. You want to really love the word of God? Invest time in it. Memorize it. You will love it. Or Psalm 119, 104. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. That's affection too, isn't it? Isn't hatred every bit as much a part of the Christian life as love? I love God and I hate every wrong path. You want to hate every wrong path? Feed on the word of God. All right. So insight produces increased faith. In, increased faith produces hotter affections. Hotter affections lead to holy resolutions. A determination in your heart that you will live a certain way. A passionate time of meditation on God's word and prayer uh, of it to God results in holy resolutions. These are determinations to walk uprightly. Psalm 119 verse 34 says, give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. In other words, he's not bargaining, but he's saying, if you do this, I will, I will obey. I resolve to obey. I will do it, God. Please show me and I will do it. Or this one, Psalm 119, verse 145. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. You see that? There's prayer. He's saying, I'm calling on you. And if you, if you answer me, I will obey your decrees. I don't know if you noticed, but that's knowledge, faith, character, action, by the way. I'm sure you did. Knowledge is insight, faith is faith, character is affection, and action comes from those holy resolutions to determine a certain path for your life. Someday it may be a book. I don't know. We'll see. Working on it. At any rate, that's why we meditate, for life transformation, so that you'll take a different course. All right? A fourfold focus for self-enrichment in meditation and prayer. Oh, boy. There's more stuff here. A lot more. I mean, way more. Like, lots more. Like, no chance more. What's the best best way to spend our last eight minutes here? Or whatever. Is that it? I don't even have seven minutes. Oh, my goodness. Eh. The best thing for me to do is get your hand out, not my notes. Let's see. All right. Fourfold focus for self-enrichment. Focus number one. What do I mean by focus? They're just basic major biblical themes that you should keep in mind whenever you meditate. That's what I'm getting at. Okay, so keep these things in mind. Christ's law, Christ's cross and empty tomb, Christ's church and heaven. Okay, those things. Law, Christ's work of, of atonement and, and resurrection, the church and what he's doing, even those that aren't, aren't converted yet, you're still thinking of them in terms of the church and your future life in heaven. Those are four things to keep in mind when you meditate all the time, whatever text it is. All right, so you go to the law. What do you go to it for? Well, Search me, O God, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Basically, use the law on me, God, to show me my blind spots. How am I sinning? What's, what's going wrong in my life? How can I mortify the deeds of the flesh in my marriage, in my parenting, in my church membership, in my job? Show me. Well, the law is given for that. It searches out your life. It shows you the truth. The law continues to have a work in us. I know you say we're not under the law. Well, we're not under the law in that it condemns us, but we're certainly sitting under the tutelage of the law that instructs us, it instructs us what a godly life looks like. Do you believe that? How can you say we're not under the law means I don't need to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself? That's the summary of the law, isn't it? Are you free from that? Oh, good, thank God I'm saved. Now I don't need to love God. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, thank God I'm saved. Now I can obey your law. 
finally I can love God and love my neighbor. And then that breaks down into lots of sub other commands. I know there's ceremonial laws, circumcision, all that. I'm not getting into that. But I'm just saying the law searches your life and shows you what you're doing wrong. Still. Secondly, Christ's cross and empty tomb. Always remember that Jesus shed his blood for you. And by the way, it's good to go from the law to the cross. Still, even as a saved person, because you're, you're like, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see how quickly he goes from the one to the other? So you're just meditating on what Jesus did for you on the cross. Keep that in mind. Jesus died for me, suffered and died. Look upward. All right. Uh, thirdly, Christ's church. Looking outward, Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That is the great grand building project of history. Should that matter to you? It is what he's doing. He is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's what he's doing. He is rescuing people from the dominion of darkness and shaping them as living stones and putting them in this beautiful temple that's rising. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. We are the place. He is preparing his own church and, 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 and the bride comes down as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. Prepared, it says, as a bride beautifully dressed. So we have been prepared by Revelation 21. So I'm saying in your meditation, keep the church in mind. It's what God's doing. He's building a church. And then finally, keep your future life in mind, your heavenly life. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. These are four kind of anchor points for yourself when you go to the scriptures. The law, so it searches you out. The cross and the empty tomb, so that you're relieved of your guilt and you know just how much you've been provided for and how amply you are provided for and how much you are loved. And how great should your hope be because Jesus rose from the dead. And the church, oh, I, I've got a work to do. I've, I've got to be busy in my life because I have spiritual gifts and I've got a role to play and there's evangelism to be done and there's a church to be built and I'm part of it. And, and the future life when all of our work will be done and we will enter finally and completely into our Sabbath rest and we will be forever with the people of God. We ought to set our hearts on those things. All right, next. Seven rich minds of biblical meditation. I bet you never thought there was so much in the scriptural meditation, but there is. All right. Four rich minds, silver mines. Silver mine number one, creation. Creation. All right, but creation is interpreted by Scripture, right? When I consider your heavens, the work of your hands, work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care about him? That's Scripture. But what is David doing? When I consider what? The heavens. He's considering the heavens, right? Or this one, it's not even in your outline. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor us men. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor is dressed like one of those. So we have the ability to say, this is my father's world. I'm going to look out and I'm going to find information about God as interpreted by scripture. Psalm 19 is another example. All right, silver mine number two, the attributes of God. Go through a psalm and just underline all the things that, God, that it says about God. Psalm 145 is a pretty good one. The Lord is gracious compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, good to all. I'll tell of your glory and speak of your might. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is near. Look at all those descriptors. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, good to all, glory, might, everlasting, faithful, righteous, and near. That's just 9, 10, 11 verses of scripture in one psalm. So one approach is you go to a psalm or whatever and you say, what does this teach me about God? 
What attributes are described about God? Thirdly, redemptive history. Now, this is a challenge for some of you, but if it's a challenge, just make a goal that will be less of a challenge 10 years from now than it is now or one year from now. Learn redemptive history. Be able to trace out in your mind from Adam and Eve through Cain and Abel, through the flood, through the uh, call of Abraham, uh, through Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, through the Exodus, and just keep right on going to know enough so that you can trace those. If you don't want to do that, then do the big ones, okay? Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from the David, David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Oh, that's big time. I can do that. Okay, Abraham, David, exile, Christ. There's four. All right, but then start filling the dots in between. By the way, that was um, Matthew 1, uh, verse 17, I think it is. So that's a good summary of redemptive history in the Old Testament. Okay, redemptive history, you trace it out. Psalm 77, Psalm 145 speaks of it. Silver mine number four, pictures of Christ. Boy, this is fun. Find them. I found a new one within the last year, and that was Darius's sealing of the lion's den with the signet ring. Sealing it. What does that remind you of? You ever think of, of something that was sealed with a ring? The tomb. The tomb of who? Jesus. That's a picture of resurrection. What about Samson putting his, one hand on one pillar and the other hand on the other? Pushing like that. And in his death, he brought down more of God's enemies than in his life. Is that not a picture of Christ? There are so many of them. You think, oh, how could there be? Well, isn't Jonah inside a whale a picture of Jesus' resurrection? Jesus said so, right? How many are there? I don't have any idea. Spurgeon found more than I'll ever find, okay? But if you do what Spurgeon said, you read a text and make a beeline to the cross, you'll find more than you thought there was. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. That's what it says in Revelation. We're out of time. Uh, silver mine number five, you are there. What does that mean? Well, just imagine. Use your imagination. Is imagination a good thing? Can we use it? Well, it depends. <laughs> depends what you imagine. You know, it says in, in uh, Genesis 6 that the thoughts and imaginations of the human heart were only evil all the time. That's bad, okay? <laughs> but it says that God is able to do more than all we can ask or imagine. We're hoping that's good, going in a good direction, just God goes infinitely beyond it. So you use your imagination. You read historical narrative and you put yourself there. Okay? By the way, you're not David killing Goliath. You're one of the Israelites cowering and afraid of Goliath. Okay? And Jesus is going out on your behalf to fight your battle for you. Do it Do it right if you're going to meditate. Okay? I know you like to see yourself as mighty David. you know, But it's better to see yourself humbly and say, Lord, thank you that you sent somebody out to fight my battle for me. Whatever. But just you imagine and it just comes alive. It really does. Silver mine number six, verbal logic on fire. This is what I'm doing in Colossians. Just look how I preach in Colossians. I'm going carefully. You think, can you really preach like a 45-minute sermon on one verse? Just get the CD from last week. Okay, Colossians 3, uh, 17. It can be done. You can do three or four sermons on one verse. All right, ought not to, though. Okay, ought not to, because, you know, it bogs you down. But I'm just telling you, the epistles are rich. You can slow down and look at phrases and compare them. Logic. Finally, imagination rooted and soaring, this you'd use with apocalyptic texts. I'm telling you, I mean, can you imagine a city that's basically from here to the Mississippi in length and width and height? Boy, imagine the elevator ride or whatever. I mean, like, woo, boy, your ears popping. You know, you're going up 12, 1,200 miles. I don't know how that works, this big cube of a city. I don't know. I don't even know what it looks like. I just know that that's what the book of Revelation says. It's, it's awesome. All right, I hope what I've done tonight is stimulate you to meditate on Scripture and to do it in a prayerful way, to do it for the transformation of your own heart and life. May God...
bless the meditations of our heart tonight. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we spent tonight. Uh, Father, we thank you for your mercy in giving us uh, this time. Father, I pray that you would please strengthen us in our commitments. I pray that every one of my brothers and sisters here would memorize some extended passage of Scripture in 2008. I just pray that. I pray right now that people would be memorizing whole books of the Bible, maybe Philippians or Ephesians or some uh, cluster of Psalms or something, and that they would labor at it until they get to the breakthrough and they start seeing rivers of new truth that they had never seen before. And tears come to their eyes and they wish that they'd started earlier, years ago. But at last, finally, they've started and now they've learned new things and they're eager to spend the rest of their lives memorizing new passages. I pray that this would be the year that happens for those that are listening to me now. Father, help me uh, in my memorization of Genesis. Just help me to continue to make progress. I just thank you for your great mercy in our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.